Are you kind of falling asleep right now? If you're driving a car and listening to the radio, that's a serious issue. And if you're on public transport, that's an issue, but for completely different reasons. And if you're home, well, then I guess it's totally okay. And that's because sleep is really good for you. Now, I know this isn't some groundbreaking scientific discovery, but sleep plays a lot of roles in helping your brain sort of go over the memories of the day and kind of sort out what's important, what's not important, and it can actually really help you remember a lot of different things. The sleep process is super important in firming memories in your brain. My name is Louis Colorotolo, and I wake up around 11 a.m. most days. I'm a graduate student at the University of Guelph trying to get a PhD in food science. And along the way, I like to talk to a lot of other people that are in graduate school trying to get degrees of their own. And when I'm not talking in my sleep, I am talking to really interesting people like Kyle Koenig, who studies what happens in the brain while we're sleeping and how sleep really helps cement memories in our brains. In fact, while we were recording this episode, Kyle's daughter was actually taking a nap, and who knows what her brain was doing or what memory she was cementing in there. And although his daughter is probably not going to remember this conversation, you listening with my talk with Kyle today might become a lasting memory, depending on what other things are happening while you're listening and how you recall those things during your sleep and whether your brain chooses to make that a memory or if you choose to completely forget it all. So listen up or fall asleep, I guess that's really your decision, to this conversation that we had with Kyle all about memory and the sleeping brain. And remember, while listening to this episode, we are grad students, and more importantly, we're human. So we're prone to errors and mistakes, and honestly, maybe we should probably sleep on it a little bit. Either way, remember that we don't know everything, which is why you're listening to an episode of We Know Some Stuff. Hi Kyle, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, how are you? I am so excited to be here right now, but before we get into the meat of our conversation, could you give us a rundown of your educational history? Yeah, I'd love to. Um, So I was born and raised in uh, Ohio. I grew up in Cleveland. Um, And really, my educational history started off pretty normally, I think, like everybody else. Um, I kind of knew I wanted to go to college um, ever since, you know, middle school and kind of always was started on that path. And it wasn't until pretty much about 10th grade that I stumbled into psychology um, and I stumbled into biology at the same time. And I really fell in love with both subjects at the same time. I really wanted to study both. And I found out that neuroscience was a thing. And I found out that, um, you know, you could study the brain. I was really fascinated that, you know, I was, I really wanted to understand the mind and I really wanted to help people. And at the same time, I really understood that, um, you know, biology was a really cool subject. And so, yeah, the intersection of those was really, really, um, you know, promising to me and enticing to me. And so um, being born and raised in Ohio, I knew that um, Ohio State was a really good school. Um, I went and started my bachelor's degree and <clears throat> started to investigate into neuroscience just like I wanted. And I found out um, I originally started off wanting to kind of study body language because I was really um, I was working some sales jobs at the Nike factory store. I was working, um, you know, various landscaping jobs to kind of make ends meet, um, you know, two jobs a week in high school to try to make enough money. And I really just kind of like was really enamored with communication and wanted to understand sort of like how are, how do our brains really work to make us communicate? And so, you know, I found out um, 
I've studied neuroscience and I studied, um, you know, some of like the behavioral aspects of neuroscience. And then I really stumbled into uh, a concept uh, known as brain imaging. And so it was this, it was this thing you could, you could go and take pictures of the human brain and you could build models, electronic models of how people's minds work and how communication works. And I was instantly fascinated. I think it was kind of like a love story at first sight. And I, I remember taking a cognitive science class and just, um, instantly shifting my major and instantly going into um, cognitive neuroscience and taking um, as many fMRI classes as I could, um, really diving into EEG and really diving into sort of these um, cognitive computational models and trying to understand how we can, um, you know, use computers and use um, our understanding of the brain to really model consciousness. Um, and also at the same time, I had been taking some philosophy courses and I had been thinking about sort of like consciousness in general and i became just like just absolutely fascinated with the whole idea of consciousness and that's what really kind of propelled me to grad school is i um i started to see that we had these brain imaging technologies for the first time i started to see that um you know we had these really big open questions about you know who are we as people what makes our minds work how do we form you know our our perception of the world i was learning things about you know, the way the brain actually forms vision. I was learning things about, you know, how your um, your memories actually influence how your eyes see the world and take in information. And I was learning um, all these really fascinating things about, you know, the sort of like the robotic ways that our, our you know, world was being created. And so I really wanted to study that further. Um, and it propelled me to grad school um, at UMass, University of Massachusetts. Um, and I basically decided to study, um, I was really, am, and am still fascinated with sort of consciousness in general. And I stumbled upon sleep as a way, um, basically the sleeping brain is really fascinating because it's kind of the only time when in the human existence, when you can simultaneously encompass aspects of being totally conscious and totally unconscious at the same time. Um, you can have things like awareness, you know, you can have things like perspective, a bunch of different terms but you can be like awake in some aspects while you're sleeping and so um from a scientific perspective it's a really kind of cool system to be able to understand what consciousness is because you kind of have a way to to get at the building blocks of it you kind of have a way to turn stuff on and turn stuff off um and look at what happens and that's like a really you know that's a really cool system to understand consciousness in general here i am now a phd student um really trying to investigate um sort of consciousness from the aspect of um sleep and memory consolidation. And so I'm really interested in sort of how our sleeping brain goes about our day and picks apart the things that we experience and sort of stores it for later use and kind of keeps everything that we learn for all of our, um, you know, for us to have access to later to understand things. And so, yeah, a long drawn out history, but that's the, that's the, <laughs> that's the sum of it. <laughs> Yeah, it really gave me uh, the entire thing. That's a very thorough history. And one thing that I loved that you pointed out in that, and you said at one point, was the intersectionality of what you were doing. Because you, you mentioned all those interests that you were in. You liked the body language stuff. You work in your retail jobs. You liked biology. You liked psychology. And this neuroscience where you're sleeping, or well, well where you're studying the brain, is truly the intersectionality of what your brain does physically and how that plays out in your life. Yeah, absolutely. At the time too, and I think a lot of people can probably relate with this, um, especially maybe some of the younger listeners, but 
I was really going through a lot of things where I was trying to, you know, discover my identity and, you know, discover who I am and what my interests were. And I think, um, you know, understanding the brain to me in some aspects was was almost like a toolkit to understand my life. And just like you're saying, like, you know, we can um, understanding the brain for me was was kind of a way to understand like, oh, this is how it's supposed to like, this is what life is supposed to be like in some ways. And this is kind of like, um, you know, it made me really uh, solidify what my identity was. And it, it was kind of like, it solidified a lot of my interests and kind of was a, an intersection of a lot of those different things. And it was, yeah, it was so like, it was really fulfilling to find it for me, I think. Yeah, you speak like a true scientist. You had to collect a whole lot of data before you were able to make up your mind on anything. <laughs> yeah. So you talk about measuring and, and looking at the, the sleeping brain. Um, I'm going to ask you a big question, and I don't, I don't want to like break you by any chance by asking this right off the bat, but uh, what in the world is sleep? Like, what is that? Yeah, that is, man, you did, oh, uh-oh. <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah, no, so sleep, that's a great question. And I think um, to really tackle it, you have to think about it in a couple different ways. So uh, if you ask sort of um, a physiologist, they might say that sleep is sort of a time where you get to rest and you get to sort of recover some of the metabolic processes that happen through your day. You know, you eat, you use up, um, your cells respirate, you build up a bunch of metabolites, and things like you basically build up a bunch of waste, you know, your cells poop and they the poop builds up and your body has to get rid of it. Right. And so there, there's some a physiologist and um, certain scientists might say that sleep is really the time where your brain and your body is kind of recovering and sort of shift dialing back some of those processes and sort of clearing some of that waste and recovering your body in a lot of senses. And that's why, you know, if you don't sleep. Everybody who has pulled an all nighter knows how you feel the next day, um, you know, or if you don't sleep for even just a couple hours, you know, really even just a couple hour difference, you can really kind of feel that, you know, that shock to your system and how much more tired you get as a result. So um, there's definitely the energy sort of metabolic recovery aspects of sleep. Um, but what I study in sort of the other aspect of sleep that um, especially in the last couple of years has become more popular, um, especially, I guess, since the 1950s, really, with with the invention of EEG is electroencephalography, um, the memory aspects of sleep. Um, so like I was saying, we experience so much throughout the day and we don't remember very much of it um we remember we have lasting memory networks we have knowledge of the world we have concepts of what things are um but we don't really have like high definition movies of every single day that we experience I w as much as i wish we did as much as that might be pretty awesome um so really the um the other aspect of sleep is sort of memory consolidation and being able to form those conceptual memory networks and really take all these this wide variety of experiences that we have and sort of dial boil it down or distill it down really into kind of what we need to hang on to as people like what do we need to know what do we need um what memories do we need to have what it what childhood experiences should we hang on to what you know what do we think about our first birthday that we ever had those kind of things yeah, and, and you, you bring up a topic that I had discussed in a previous episode, Archives Available Online, <laughs> that uh, we talked about sensory gating. Like, how do you ignore things that are happening to you, but focus on other things that are happening to you? Because, uh, you know, right off the bat, and I'll ask you this question as I've asked it to people before, what'd you have for breakfast? Oh, breakfast is hard for me. I usually I skip breakfast, but this morning, uh, you actually caught me in a good day. 
Um, I made quiches for the family, so I had a goat cheese and tomato quiche. Yeah, and and that's a good point. You were able to remember that because it was somewhat of a more significant activity than just skipping it. Whereas uh, someone like me, coffee. I it took me honestly that long to remember that it was just coffee that I had. Yeah. Um. So so you 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 don't remember everything, and you were talking about how your brain kind of selects what to remember. How do you see this kind of thing, and how does sleep play into this? Yeah, so really there's a lot of different theories, um, and it's kind of an open question at the moment, really scientifically, to nail down, you know, exactly what, what, what is, you know, what do we remember and how. Uh, but what we do know, um, and what, we can, what I can say is that there are, there's these processes that happen during sleep. Um, so there's basically these brain waves that are happening each carry sort of a memory function during sleep. And what happens is that different stages of sleep and different aspects of those memory function sort of target uh, certain aspects of memories. And so what happens is that when we're sleeping, um, actually everything that we experience throughout the day and this um, is reactivated. There's studies in mice that show this. So what they did, um, this is actually kind of a cool, you might have heard this, um, this is actually a pretty popular science article that um, I think has percolated pretty far into the world, I think, at this point. But what they did is they have um, they had a mouse run through a maze. And each one of, um, each, basically different locations in the maze were um, caused different neurons in the brain to become active. And so what scientists can do is they can kind of track, um, they can track a mouse's brain as it runs through the maze. And they can see that, okay, this group of neurons, neuron B, uh, lights up in the right quadrant of the maze. Southern neuron lights up in the other quadrant, and so on. And you can kind of get an idea of um, place, like neurons that fire in certain places. And so um, when you have a mouse run through the maze, you can get basically neurons uh, firing in a sequence. And you can get kind of like um, an order of neurons firing. You can get maybe A, B, C, and D, or you know whatever order the mouse goes through the maze, you can get an order of what the neurons are firing. And the cool part, and what they found out, is they looked then at what, what's happening to those neurons during sleep. What are, what are those neurons doing while the brain is sleeping? You know, are, they, are some of them being reactivated? Are, are, are they just kind of like, is it completely different memories being reactivated? Like, what's going on in the sleeping brain with those neurons? And they found out that they're actually, those exact, that exact experience is essentially being replayed like a movie, or basically just being re-experienced in the sleeping brain. So those same neurons that encoded the running around the maze are actually firing again while you're asleep. And the thought is that when those neurons are firing, um, a neuron firing actually causes it to strengthen. And so when you reactivate these memories and when you're reactivating these experiences, you're actually strengthening those memories. And so um, really the way that the sleeping brain is kind of deciding what memories to keep and deciding what things to hang on to for the next day is by reactivating certain experiences that you had. And each one of those experiences that you had is going to be represented by a network of neurons that shares connections with other neurons and other experiences. And so the idea is that each time you reactivate one of these experiences and the subsequent neural networks and the subsequent traces that it represents, you kind of are strengthening um, different aspects of those memories. And so you can imagine that, imagine your first birthday that you ever had and kind of what is that experience like, you know, there was probably a birthday cake there, I would hope. 
there's probably, you know, you had friends there, there were candles, and you kind of have this, you have a concept of what should be there, right? You know, from your understanding of birthday parties, kind of generally what should be there, but you have no recollection of, you know, probably some people might change, but you don't have a recollection of like what the candles smell like. You don't have a recollection of like, you know, any of the sounds that were going on, some of the laughs that you heard, you know, you kind of lose out on a lot of those details, but um, you kind of keep the more generalized aspects that are common across all the birthdays you've ever experienced. And so that's kind of what's happening in the sleeping brain is every time you reactivate a memory, anything from that experience that you've experienced before or that's shared by other experiences is like extra boosted. Okay, so these memories are kind of replaying again in your brain. And and I don't know if you know the answer to this, but can I replay memories in my brain while I'm sleeping that didn't happen the day before? Yeah, absolutely. That's where you get dreaming from. And so um, what's kind of cool is that you get uh, dreaming is really us experiencing consolidation. And so, um, like I said, these memories are being reactivated. They're literally replaying our experiences. And though that activity is kind of just going wildfire through all of our neural network. So every time I go to sleep, um, you know, I might be, I, Bella might come up in my mind and I'm, my, my daughter Bella will come up and I'll, um, the second she reactivates, she's crying now, you might hear in the background, but that'll immediately like, hear that in a dream and that'll immediately make me think of, you know, things related to that. And so, yeah, that's kind of how it works. And that's kind of what dreaming comes from too. That is so fascinating. I feel like dreaming, we could probably, you know, record like 20 or 50 different shows on just what dreaming is. And I know that that's not something necessarily you study, but the brain is active while you're sleeping. Uh, sometimes that causes dreaming and, and sometimes it doesn't cause dreaming. I really don't know the answer to that. The answer is you are always dreaming every night, no matter what, whether you remember it or not. Um, and you're actually dreaming in REM sleep and different stages of sleep. There's some evidence, there's some people that would say you only dream during REM sleep. That's actually a common myth. Um, you dream during all stages of sleep and the dream content um, actually changes with the different stages. So yeah, so everybody has probably heard of sleep stages. You know, you have REM sleep where your eyes are moving around. You have deeper sleep, all this, all this kind of different things. But yeah, the, the content of your dreams can actually change with different sleep stages and you are always dreaming but you definitely basically what controls what you remember dreams is kind of unclear yeah that and it's a fascinating thing you know, like you know sometimes you wake up and you remember a dream so vividly but then like five minutes later you can't recall a single detail from it as it like just slowly seeps out of your mind as it feels yeah yeah or even yeah absolutely and then the second you wake up or move out your day you have really you know hard time going back to it even so when you sleep one of the reasons you might not remember your dreams is that your hippocampus and sort of your medial temporal lobe is really what's responsible for kind of like recording your memories and basically that part of your brain and isn't functioning in the way that it normally would to store your memories so when you're awake it's kind of like it's functioning in a certain way that takes your experiences and you know consolidates them and stores them into your memory networks but when you're sleeping that sort of like function isn't the same. And so it, it makes sense that you wouldn't remember your dreams because that one aspect isn't, that isn't functioning anymore, you know? That's honestly, that's fascinating. And it's a really interesting way to think about it. I never figured uh, that your brain would function more or less differently, even in the same areas while you're sleeping. And so this kind of is more or less what you study, how the brain does things differently while sleeping. So we were talking about reactivating memories and um, you were kind of asking, can we reactivate a memory that you know you didn't experience 
that day. And what I'm really studying is you can actually use sound cues and different sensory cues to targetedly reactivate whatever memory you want. So let's give a, a hypothetical example. Let's say we have this mouse runs his little race and he's firing these neurons A, B, C, D. But as he was doing it in the room, we had this smell of vanilla cookies. Um, and and we wanted to him to remember this sequence. Could we kind of like trigger this sequence through uh, bringing in this smell that was so familiar when he was running this maze? That is exactly what you can do. Your nose is still working while you sleep. Your ears are still working while you sleep. You know, your different parts of your, your basically your basic sensory systems are sort of all still online while you sleep, but you're just not tuning into them anymore. You know, you're still, obviously your eyes are closed, so you're not seeing anything, but you're still, you still have proprioception. You still know where your body is in space. And so, yeah, these different sensory cues like smells can actually sort of slip in under the radar and your brain is processing them. So when you're sleeping, you definitely smell vanilla. And what happens is that vanilla smell basically does the same thing it does when you're awake. It reminds you of things, you know, it goes through your brain and triggers certain neural networks to reactivate different um, memory traces. And when we're sleeping, we can do the same thing. And so, yeah, that mouse running through the maze, if he's, if that little guy's sleeping, we can go back and give him a vanilla smell and actually make his memory of the maze a lot stronger. So other than manipulating mice for some sick pleasure, what's the <laughs> point? Like, why, why are you spending all your time researching this? Yeah, so there are a lot of different applications. One sort of like selfish one that I think is cool for me is that what you could ultimately do is say you want to study for a test. You could boost, you know, you could basically boost your test scores in this way. You could study listening to classical music or study um, listening to some sort of like with a certain candle. And then I wouldn't recommend a candle, but maybe like an air freshener and then go to bed and the next day you might actually be improved compared to not using that candle. But there are also sort of more cool um, and more, of, more sort of health oriented aspects of it. And one of the really cool ones that I um, am really interested in lately is its application to post-traumatic stress disorder. That's a really big uh, sort of problem, especially with our troops nowadays and especially um, as we see depression levels rise and you know, sadly with the pandemic, um, and depression levels rising from that and everything like that. Yeah, like PTSD and a lot of these sort of like stress disorders um, are on the rise. And it turns out that sleep is actually a really important part of being able to process emotions. Every emotion that we experience and every feeling that we experience is really the combination of two things. It's the combination of sort of what our body feels. It's what our heart rate is. It's what our breathing is. You know, it's what all those sorts of things is. And it's also what our, like our mental appraisal of it is. A traumatic experience and sort of a, uh, a strong memory and an emotional memory elicits like, even when you aren't experiencing it. So if I, um, you know, if I was in battle or um, I had a really bad experience, um, every time I relive that experience, my heart rate's gonna go up. My breathing is gonna go up. I'm gonna feel the physiological sort of like I'm going to get all worked up as a result of experiencing that memory. But when we sleep, what happens is we can reactivate those memories and not feel all the physiological arousal. And so what over time in a normal brain, what we do is we process those emotional memories and we start to separate out the two. We start to be able to think about the experience that we had without getting our heart rate up, without getting all the physiological arousal. And over time, that memory sort of becomes less intense to us. We don't get as aroused by it. We don't get as upset by it. What there's evidence of now that happens in things like PTSD and sort of chronic stress disorders is that process isn't happening during sleep. 
um, when we're reactivating this memory, the physiological ties to it are still being are still being brought up during sleep. All those things that are sort of sort of supposed to get be getting died down aren't. Um, one of the really cool things you can do with TMR is actually go and potentially tie a sensory cue to some of these hurtful memories and reactivate them in a sleeping brain. And you can actually sort of drive that process and boost this natural process that isn't happening otherwise. And yeah, it'd be really cool. We can actually help a lot of people that way. That is fascinating. And, and when I think of PTSD, I think a classic example that uh, maybe a lot of people would recognize is uh, fireworks. Uh, yeah. You you hear like, you know, uh, there are going to be a lot of veterans who experience PTSD who are going to be, you know, very terrified when fireworks are playing because it might remember uh, them of, you know, some of the experiences of being in a battlefield, although they're not gunshots. Right. They're, you know, they're not in any actual danger, but this memory associated with being in danger um, is experienced through this gunshot and a lot of times people will shut down. Yeah. So, so when you're shut down, you really can't process those emotions healthy. Exactly. Um, so, so if we're able to separate that physiological, the fear, the, 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 the physical reactions, the heart rate, the, you know, that, that shutting down, if we're able to separate that and help people heal emotionally, we can potentially help people with PTSD. Is that more or less what you're saying? Yeah, that's exactly what I'm saying. And there's this technique uh, in some studies has worked. What's unclear now is sort of like how far can this go? And that's one of the one of the targets and sort of goals of my dissertation research is to say like TMR uh, is what the it, targeted memory reactivation is sort of what the this idea is called. Um, we can use a sensory cue to reactivate a targeted memory, and it's a relatively new study um, of, and it really only came out and has really been popularized sort of since. Like, I think the first study was done in somewhere around 2006, maybe 2008. We really don't know, like, how far can this go? Like, can we only react? What we've done so far is sort of use a sound cue to reactivate a word. So I'll take something like a beep and I'll pair it to a word like fish tank. And I'll play that beep to you at the, during the night. And the word fish tank becomes stronger the next day when I ask you if you remember it. But, you know, that's, what's unclear is that fish tank is related to a lot of things in your brain, you know, um, or in the case of um, fireworks, you know, fireworks, uh, we take a veteran, fireworks may be related to loud noise, which may be related to gunshot, which may be related to fear. What we don't know is if we reactivate something like fireworks, is everything else that's associated with fireworks also reactivated sort of how far does that go like what can we use sound cues to reactivate can we use it to reactivate a whole experience can we you know is it just that we can only reactivate one aspect of that experience or can we really like you know can we replay a whole memory can we get rid of some like you know potentially traumatic childhood experiences are there things like opportunities like that um that we can sort of expand and my one of my um aims of my dissertation is to kind of like see how far we can go with a cue, see if we can use a sound cue to affect related memories that are um, sort of near that reactivated sound cue. Yeah, this is super interesting stuff. And it seems like you're kind of paving the way for, you know, a kind of a, a somewhat unconventional way of helping people through experiences that seem to be really bad. There's that aspect in the translational aspect, but there's also the other aspect of, you know, even older adults, um, you know, people are, or or people with ADHD or people with um, learning deficits or even just the normal healthy guy, um, you know, like me or me or you who wants to just learn a little more, um, who wants to just have 
you know, boost their memory or is maybe having trouble with the subject is really trying to study economics and is having a hard time with it. Um, you know, this might be a way to boost learning in that way, too. Yeah, you are like the definition of creating life hacks over here. <laughs> you know, and I've, and I've read those life hacks before. I, I think most people have. They say like, oh, if you're, you know, listening to music, try to listen to it while you study and while you take the test, you'll be able to remember better. I mean, that yeah. I've always heard that one and I've never really questioned it that much. But this is along the lines of, of that. Yep, same lines. Let me run a scenario through you. Um, I'm listening to, or let, let's say I'm, I'm smelling an aroma um, while I'm studying calculus. And then that night, if I want to kind of re-cement things in my brain, I want to continue like maybe smelling that same scent. And I appreciate earlier you, you made a point about fire safety that I think went uh, <laughs> unrecognized. As you said, candles aren't a good idea, so so we'll stick with scents. Yes, yeah, um, yeah scents is a good way. So it's, it's kind of cementing in my brain. And then if I were to now have to be at the point in which I recall it, if I were to use that scent again, I could potentially recall better because it's not only recalling when I was learning it, but it's recalling when I was cementing it in my brain during sleep. And now that I'm trying to use it, I have it more kind of at my disposal in my brain. Yeah. And honestly, the best analogy or metaphor that I like to use for this is, have you ever been trying to remember the lyrics of a song? Uh, constantly. Constantly. And you get to one lyric and you think about like, you remember that one, that one little thing. And then all you have to do to get to the other lyrics is you kind of think back and you sing to yourself the melody. And you try, you know, maybe that gets a couple more words. And then once you get those couple words, you kind of get a little bigger chunk of the melody and you kind of work your way through getting back to what the whole lyric is. And I think that process is exactly how your mind works with everything. That's exactly how you remember anything that you ever remember. Um, in order to sort of like get back to the file cabinet where that memory really is, you have all these different cues and all these different contexts, all these different things of aspects that you use to retrieve it. When you're talking about sort of being awake and uh, the studies where um, the actual study that they did is they had you basically take a test underwater or take a test on land. And then they tested you, they switched and they either tested you um, on land or underwater. Um, so if you took the test underwater and then were tested underwater, you did better. But if you took the test underwater or if you learned underwater and then took the test on land, you did worse. And so basically the idea is that all these context cues are sort of acting like the melody. And every time you're trying to remember anything, any memory, the lyric, all of these different context cues are sort of providing um, assistance for you to be able to retrieve that memory. And so the same, the idea is that what's happening during sleep is you're kind of, a smell is one aspect uh, memory. And what you're able to do is you're able to basically reactivate that cue to that memory that then sort of reactivates the whole thing. Um, and so, yeah, like you're saying, you can kind of like, Every, every context you give and every sort of like cue that you give and every sensory edge that you give towards a memory will ultimately help you recall it better later, no matter what. And so, yeah, the more, if you're studying for calculus, definitely having a vanilla smell there while you're studying will help you remember it. Like having a vanilla, then having a vanilla smell while you're trying to recall it will help you remember it better, no matter what, because it basically offers something like a melody 
to provide you more context to be able to get back to that memory. Oh, that is a really interesting way of putting it. I, I really like that kind of analogy. So if I'm if I'm to step away from the idea of having, you know, a, a specific trigger, more or less, just in general, so kind of even simplifying this a little bit, I know that if I study for one hour before I go to bed and then take a test the next day, it is way more effective than studying for an hour before the test. Absolutely, yeah. Um, there are so many consolidation mechanisms and so many... Basically, the, the way to put it is that your brain is actually uniquely optimized during sleep to consolidate memories. Um, so not only do you not have sort of interference from all these other things, so, so when you're awake, your hippocampus... You have all these, like your hippocampus is kind of like a sketch pad and you're sort of just like recording, writing things down sort of short term throughout the day. And um, you go back later to pick through that and store everything for long term. Yeah. So you, you pick through it uh, to decide what stays for long term and, and what doesn't. And that's not something I can like, you know, sit down with a checklist while I'm sleeping and say, yes, I'll remember this one and this one and this one. But eh, we'll forget that one. <laughs> we can't do that. No, definitely not. <laughs> Yeah, so I mean, there there's things that we do remember and things that we don't remember. What I'm fascinated so much about what, what we learned from just talking to you today is the, the very fact that we're kind of cementing um, these experiences in our brain while we sleep, which calls to mind a phrase that a lot of people use is, let me sleep on it. The brain is uniquely optimized during sleep um, to, to to do memory consolidation. So, as you, you know, when you're awake, what's really happening is your, your hippocampus is is involved with sort of keeping things in short-term storage and as you're awake you're constantly experiencing new things and it's constantly being overwritten so you have the sketch pad that only has so much storage and you have to kind of keep putting new things on it so everything is going to be overwritten at some point and so sleep is really uniquely optimized for consolidation because you don't have any more of that sensory input you know all the your eyes are closed you um, aren't really tuning into what your ears are telling you you aren't really tuning into what your body is telling you and your brain is just kind of sitting with itself and the memories and the things that it has created throughout the day. And so it's really uniquely optimized for consolidation because it doesn't have to deal with all this incoming information at the same time. It can really just kind of turn all that off and focus on, okay, now I have all this information that I learned. What can I do with it? How can I relate it to each other? How can I take, you know, how can I take my uh, lunchtime with Bella and how can I take how she reacted with the pancake? and relate it to um, all the times that she like liked peanut butter or didn't. Um, and how can I relate, uh, how can I take her crying and um, think of all the times that, um, you know, I wanted all the things that might make her happier, things like that. Um, your sleeping, the sleeping brain is really way better than the waking brain at consolidation. Um, and so the idea of sleep on it is really because your brain is, you do consolidate while you're awake, but you have to kind of juggle perceiving things and experiencing things while trying to store them. And you don't have that challenge while you're asleep. That is so cool. So it's kind of like a sensory deprivation kind of thing. Like your yeah. brain's not focused on that. If you've ever seen like the sci-fi movies, they put them into this like saltwater tank or something. I think Strangers Thing did that with the. I want to do one so bad. I think they're so cool. People, people do those, those things exist. Yeah, they do. They're it's like a saltwater bath that you can you'll feel weightless and like you don't feel your body in it. And it's like completely dark and there and it's like yep. an echo not even an echo chamber it's like 100% silent in there. Yeah. And they say it's it's great for people who have anxiety or it's great for people who are you know have a uh, depression or 
Yeah, and actually there's evidence to say that that's actually good for consolidation too, um, for the same reason. Um, so you basically, like, if you wanted to study it and then do a deprivation tank, that would actually, if you decide to get one of those, you're really having trouble with calculus, you know, maybe that's your answer. You know, this is like the most interesting tutoring advice like you could possibly give. <laughs> like, <laughs> life hack, if you want to remember something, pay like $80 an hour to sit in a sensory deprivation tank so you can remember the quadratic formula. Perfect. <laughs> it, that is uh, some fascinating stuff, and I haven't really connected the two before. But your brain's not doing a lot of work, you know, sensing things. So it's like, all right, I'm going to just focus all on this one job, and it's going to be consolidating memory a lot better. Yeah, exactly. Wow. So that that allows you to really uh, sleep on it. Yeah. Yep. And when you're sleeping on it, you're thinking about it and you're dreaming. You know, that's yeah, that's fascinating stuff. So could you could you help us out a little bit and kind of give us a, a moral of the story or what is the take home message from today's discussion? Yeah, the take home message is today's discussion is um, really that even though you're sleeping and your body might not be doing very much, your brain is doing a whole lot. Um, and it's doing a whole lot of very important things that are really, really cool. Um, and we are, as scientists, just starting to tap into what the brain is really doing. Um, what I didn't get to talk about today that's immensely cool is we can actually learn brand new things while we sleep. We can, um, you can learn brand new word associations. You can learn new languages while you sleep. You can, um, there's some evidence that you can uh, basically like improve, like we talked about reactivating memories and improving. There's some evidence that you can actually learn new, uh, basically grammatical syntax uh, rules. You can learn new insights. You can have insights. You can go to bed not understanding the solution to a puzzle and wake up understanding the solution. And so sort of the take home that I would like to give is that the sleeping brain is really cool and is doing a lot of things that scientists are sort of just discovering and just being able to make life hacks out of. Um, and I think that there'll be really promising life hacks for the future. Yeah, that, that is fascinating. I'm, I'm so glad that this is, you know, something that we can like actually tangibly like grab right now after listening to this, uh, this conversation, rather than like, ah, yes, in 17 years, you'll see a pill that might help affect this. So that, that, that's so interesting. I'm going to try to use this. Maybe I'll try to, like, learn some Spanish by, like, putting a telenovela on while I sleep. Yeah. And I'll, and I'll wake Absolutely. up, you know, speaking fluent Spanish. <laughs> try to lucid dream about it. That's your best bet. Oh, God, now that's, like, another 27 <laughs> episodes. Yeah. Well, maybe another time. <laughs> All right. Well, I want to thank you so much uh, for having this conversation with us. I uh, think that I'm going to actually take a power nap because I'm exhausted. Um, and we'll see what happens when I wake up. Yeah, I, uh, my daughter is about to wake up at the same time. So, Lewis, thank you so much for bringing me onto the show. I think this is an immensely cool uh, opportunity. I really appreciate the ability to talk about my research and sort of science in general. And I will be a listener and will continue to be a listener. I think this is so cool. Thanks for having me. All right, time to wake up. The show is over. But if you fell asleep, yeah, at least you'll know that your brain is really quite active during sleep and active in a very different way than when you're awake. So your brain was making some memories, maybe recalling some facts from the day, associating with other memories like smells and sounds. And maybe one day you'll be able to recall some of that information when you hear a similar sound or smell a similar smell. If you've ever listened to an episode of We Know Some Stuff Before, there's a good chance that you remember that we do a fact check at the end of every episode. 
You probably didn't need to sleep on it to remember, but we really stress the importance of a fact check because we don't always know if we're right, which is why the show is called We Know Some Stuff, not We Know Everything, so we're going to talk at you for 30 minutes. That being said, we went over the recording, we slept on it, we listened to it one more time, and we came to the conclusion that we didn't say anything that needed fact-checking. We're certainly not perfect, and we don't always get it right, but on the chance that we do, it's still super important to acknowledge and recognize that facts change, like the times and the weather and the tides, and we might have to make corrections in the future, and that's really just the beauty of the scientific process. So now that the show is over, go ahead, reward yourself, take a nap, and, well, think about it while you're taking a nap. Not that you can control that, but, you know, something to think about while you're, well, thinking about it. Either way, thanks for listening to another episode of We Know Some Stuff. <laughs>